Amen. Be great to see, not 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 a comparison at all, but it'd be great to see that kind of outreach here as well. Something we're talking about as elders and trying to make sure people have a vision for where you are, to reach out where you are, to be the church where you are. So uh, it's exciting. It's good stuff. Thanks, Ken. Um, let me first of all say that truthfully, and this is not in any way, shape, or form any kind of false humility, I am I'm really utterly overwhelmed with the enormity of this passage that we're going to look at today. Um, there's so much in it, and, and as if that wasn't important enough, the so much in it is vitally important that we understand it. I mean, there's a lot in this passage, and I, I, if I was going to be completely honest, I'm really scared. I'm scared to present this passage, and I'm not, again, that's not an overstatement. Um, I feel like anything I do or say is like trying to bring you the ocean in a teaspoon. And, uh, and I mean that. Uh, I'm completely trusting that God delights in using our weakness to image forth His glory and that He can do what I can't. So, that being said, let's get started. Now, little, ah, little levity and lightness before we start. Have you ever been really wrong about song lyrics? Sounds like a yes, right? Like, really wrong. But you're sure that you were right. I mean, you're sure about it. You're out there rocking with somebody, and you know, you're singing, you're in the car, and you're singing words that are just way out of kilter, and they look at you like, what are you singing? And you're like, what? It's like, excuse me, while I kiss this guy, and they're going, what? Like what? Hendrix rocks, man. He was really saying, kiss the sky, by the way. Not kiss this guy. Or, you know, you're, you're singing Elton John and you say, hold me closer, Tony Danza, right? That's, that's not what he says. He says, hold me closer, tiny dancer. And there's a part of us that still wants to argue and say, no, no, it's, it's Tony Danza. And, and, and you come up with this story about, yeah, Elton John helped Tony Danza get into show business and they, they were friends, so he wrote this song about him and you, and you're making up a story that you're just sure that you heard somewhere. You know that you've heard it somewhere, sometime. Tony Danza, Elton John, hold me closer, Tony Danza. And then you look at the title of the song and it's called Tiny Dancer and you're like, oh yeah, it's, it's not Tony Danza. How about, anybody ever heard the story about the Phil Collins song, In the Air Tonight? Anybody ever heard this story? Okay. There's this, anybody ever heard the song, In the Air Tonight? It's got the big, you know, it's got the big drum thing there. I can feel it coming in the air tonight. I've been waiting for this moment for all of my life. And, and, and the verse says, uh, uh, I was there and I saw what you did. I saw it with my own two eyes. So you can wipe off that grin. I know where you've been. It's all been a pack of lies. Well, the story goes that when Phil Collins was younger, him and his friend were swimming and his friend was drowning. And there was a guy on the beach that didn't come out and help and Phil Collins' friend drowned. And that Phil Collins brought this guy to a show later on to one of his concerts, sat in front row and told the story. He said, this song is about you. It's awful. Well, it's not true. It's a false story. And I told that story like 20,000 times. Like, we'd be rocking out in the car. I'm like, listen, you know, there's, have you heard the story about this song? Man, it's awful. This guy watched this guy drown. And Phil Collins sat him in front row. He said, you're the man, you know. And then Phil Collins gets on Storytellers on VH1 and says, have y'all heard that story? But I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, it's, it's not true. 
It says, didn't know where it came from, don't know how it got started, but it's not true. Have you ever just been really wrong about something that you were just sure you were right about? Yeah. Today we're going to look at a guy named Nicodemus who was really wrong about something that he was really sure about. And uh, he couldn't have been more wrong, but he finds out from the source himself it's better than sit and listen to Phil Collins tell the story that's not true. So uh, I'm going to read John chapter 2, starting in verse 23, and read through chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to start there. My hands are sweating. I'm really scared, guys. <laughs> okay. That's right. He's good. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let me pray. God, it is great to be able to come to the source and ask for directions, ask for clarity. And that's what we do this morning. We ask that You would make clear the things that our lives and our sins have fuzzied We ask that You would be clear and concise in the things that we're confused about. And God, we are begging You to help us understand this this morning because it's important. It's vital. It is a matter of life or death. It is a matter of heaven or hell. May we feel the weight of that, but may we know of Your greatness and Your goodness and Your ability to communicate to us through the power of Your Holy Spirit. We need Your help. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go through this passage, and it's lengthy. Um, and really, truthfully, you could, like Hamlet did, you could read the whole chapter and, and go through it as one passage. You've got to cut it off somewhere. Uh, so we stopped at verse 15. Um, and, and there's three divisions that I see here, and we're going to work through these three divisions, then we're going to look at application from these truths that we learn from these three divisions. The first division is uh, 
chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 2. That's the first division. Uh, the second division is verses 3 through 8. And the third division is verses 9 through 15. And like I did the last time I spoke about uh, the water turned to wine, we're just going to work through this. Just straight through it. Uh, learning what's in there to learn. And then at the end of it, we'll have application points uh, to pull out from what we've learned. So we're going to start with the first division, which is chapter 2, verse 23 through 3, chapter 3, verse 2. And let me slow down speaking because I'm going to slow down. Okay. <clears throat> So, let me read that again, uh, 2.23 through 3.2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, what do we learn from this? First, we uh, remember when uh, Moon was talking about the Passover feast and how uh, the Jewish leaders had the authority to expand the borders of Jerusalem because the Passover could only happen in Jerusalem. So when he was at the Passover, that means there was a lot of people there. And Jesus was doing what at the Passover? He was doing... Signs, thank you for the whisper. Jesus was doing signs at the Passover. Now, we don't know what these signs were. They're not recorded for us here in John. But a lot of people saw these signs. A lot of people saw these signs. And what does it say they were doing as, as a result of seeing these signs? They were believing in His name. So, that's a good thing, right? Right? The problem is, it says that Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them. They were seeing signs, they were believing, and Jesus knew what was in them. It wasn't genuine faith in who He was. It was, wow, miracles. Wow, signs. We like this guy. This, this could be the start of something big. This guy's doing signs. And they were believing in the signs... And they were saying, sign guy. There's the sign guy. I like the sign guy. The sign guy does neat stuff. But Jesus was going, I know what you're thinking. I know what's in you. And I'm not entrusting myself to you. Okay? So, uh, uh, Herb Hodges calls them miracle mongers. They were running after the miracles. And you can't blame them. I mean, you can't. Because it would, it would have been awesome to see all that. And, and notice the connection. And the reason we backed up into chapter 2 is you see the connection It says Jesus knew what was in man and then immediately it says and then Nicodemus is called a man of the Pharisees. So there, there's a clear picture here. Jesus knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. It's important to see that connection because he placed Nicodemus in the camp of these people who were seeing the signs and, and Nicodemus didn't give him reason not to do that. Uh, because Nicodemus says, Teacher, we know that you're sent from God because nobody can do the what? The signs that you do unless God's with them. So again, Nicodemus' belief was rooted in Jesus' signs. Now, 
about Nicodemus quickly. He was a Pharisee, um, and the Pharisees were strict religious people. And you've probably heard that all your life. And But he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a ruler among the Pharisees. This would infer that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, which was a legislative and judicial group of Jews who had power under the Roman government to make decisions in Jewish laws and customs, kind of like a representative or a delegate today. Uh, a 71-member council made up of uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, different people, and they would make decisions around the law. So he wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a leader amongst the Pharisees. I mean, this guy was creme de la creme. And I can tell you right now, this man was extremely devout, he was extremely religious. And I, I can almost guarantee you, he would roll his eyes at your religion. He would say, you don't know what religion is. This guy was to the letter and, you know, Jesus told, I think Moon mentioned the last time he spoke as well, they tithe down to the dill, mint, and cumin, which was the smallest of the spices. So they, they gave a tenth of everything that they had. This man was not just some religious schmuck who thought it was nice to come to church when he felt like it. This guy was an example of what religion was all about. Do not look at Nicodemus and say, this guy's goofy. This guy's an idiot. No, 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 no. This guy was highly learned and highly zealous in his religion. Because he's going to say a couple things, you're going to go, what? Don't get it in your mind that this man was some clueless schmuck. He was not. He was highly regarded. He was incredibly smart. And I don't want you to get a picture of him like he's an idiot. Because he's not. Now, it says that Nicodemus came when? This man came to Jesus by chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, why night? I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of reasons why it could have happened this way. And actually, if you look at the, the contrast between night and day in John, it's all through there. There's night and there's day. Jesus said, if you walk in the night, if you walk in the day, and if, there's several passages in John, and I, I wrote them down and I took them out because I'm like, but look, as you're going through John, watch for the contrast between night and day. Night's not good, day's good. Okay? So there's a negative connotation that he came at night. It could be that he didn't want to be seen. It could be that he thought he might be disassociated from the Sanhedrin, from the Pharisees, if he was seen speaking with Jesus. That's a possibility. I think it's simplistic, but it's a possibility. It could also be that here's two pretty prominent guys. Okay? Nicodemus, Jesus, who's this up-and-coming rabbi, and could you imagine them? Sitting in the marketplace trying to talk and people coming by. Oh, miracle guy. Hey, look, he's talking to, he's talking to Nicodemus, religious guy, sign guy. And they probably couldn't get a good conversation in. So there's a real good possibility that he came at night just so that they could talk. Let's just sit down and talk, Jesus, because, you know, we can't do it during the day. So he comes at night and we don't know why. Um, but there's some possibilities there. They may just not have wanted to be disturbed. He may not have wanted to be disturbed. Now, notice how he addresses Jesus. What's he call him? And he said to him, Rabbi. Now, this is somewhat respectful because he recognized that Jesus had standing as a teacher. But the problem is with that, it misses Jesus off the map because basically he's saying Jesus is on the same level as he is. 
I recognize you as equal with me. I'm a teacher, you're a teacher, let's talk. So he approaches Jesus and he's, he's being respectful, he thinks. It's like he's singing the wrong words to the song, kind of. I, the tiger, was one that I just butchered, by the way. I mean, I didn't know what it said till like six months ago. I looked it up online, but anyway. <clears throat> so anyway, he misses Jesus off the map because basically he's saying Jesus is on the same level as he is. He treated Jesus as an equal. Again, it's respectful, but it's wrong. Okay? Was Jesus a teacher? Yes, he was. Was he just a teacher? The culture today says he was a good moral teacher. And you know what? They're wrong. Because that's not all that he is. That's not all that he was. Then he says, Rabbi, what's the next word after Rabbi? We're not going to go this slow through the whole passage, by the way, so take a breath. We. Nicodemus says we. And this seems to infer at least some of the council, some of Nicodemus's peers, were in agreement in their estimation of Jesus. Right? It says that we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So people have been talking. Even amongst the Pharisees, even amongst the council, they're talking about this guy, Jesus. And Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the signs you do unless they're sent from God. And we, and I tuck that away because it's going to come into play here a little bit later, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. They saw him as a teacher. And what did they base that on? On his miracles. Just like the rest of the miracle mongers. They were basing their judgments on the same thing as the mob, which is probably not the best idea. So there's the first section. Okay, just brief run through. Let's go to the second section, verses three through eight. This is where it gets real. Okay? We, we've heard the wrong words to the song so far, and we're about to see the right words. Jesus answered him, starting in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to them, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Now, notice Jesus' interaction here. Jesus could have played the nice guy and kind of, ah, shucks, thanks Nicodemus for recognizing me and my signs. I appreciate that. But he doesn't even go close to that. That's not at all where he went. Jesus bypassed any pleasantries and went straight to the crippling heart of where he wanted this conversation to go. Jesus starts to drive this bus quickly. He takes the wheel quick. Nicodemus comes, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. No one can do the miracles you do unless God is with them. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And he grabs the wheel. And it's crippling. Now, truly, truly is translated from the Greek, which is amen, amen. Only John records Jesus using this phrase, and he, 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 he uses it a lot. And it means, I'm telling you solemn, unchanging, uncompromising truth. Listen. It's calling attention to what I'm about to say is supra important. Listen. Jesus turns any attention from the Pharisees and their estimation of Him to what is truth. I say to you, this is what matters, not what others are saying or thinking about Him. And here's the crux of it all. What does He say to him? Unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're looking for a thesis statement, if you're looking for a theme, this is it. This is the most important statement. Everything else supports this or fights against this. Now stop and think about the enormity of this statement. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's at stake? Eternity is at stake. Heaven and hell, life and death are bound up in that statement. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nothing is more important than that statement there. And Jesus wants Nicodemus to know this is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is important. Now, how does this being born again happen? How does it happen? By being born again, we see the kingdom of God. What does it mean? Everybody sitting in this building, actually, everybody drawing breath on planet Earth has been born. Right? That, that's profound, profound, isn't it? It's a profundity. I wanted to say profundity, but... That, I mean, it, it, it's oversimplified, but really, think about it. Everybody has been born. It's a duh statement, duh statement, but it has to be said. Jesus is saying that to live in the kingdom of God, which is ultimately heaven, with God for eternity, one has to be born into that kingdom. And the phrase born again can be translated a couple of different ways. The Amplified Bible brings out all of the different translations. And it says this, that unless a person is born again, born anew, born from above. It could literally be translated any of those three ways. Born again, born anew, or born from above. So what does this mean? And I love it. Nicodemus asks for us. Okay, verse 4. And verse 4 kind of gives us what could be an unflattering picture of Nicodemus if it's taken the wrong way. His question, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now again, this may make us think that he's clueless or that he's just silly. And that's not it at all. Remember, this is a wise, learned man. He's simply pointing out, Jesus, what you're saying is impossible. This can't be done. He's not saying, should I go back to mom's house and see if there's something she and I can work on. He's not saying that. He's saying, Jesus, what you're saying makes no sense at all. What you're saying is impossible. And again, Jesus backs that up or comes at that with a truly, truly statement. It's in verses 5 and 6, and it gives us a little bit of clarity on what it means to be born again. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, that's that's one of those passages that I think we miss off the map a lot. And, and what Jesus, I really wholeheartedly believe, is doing is taking us back into the Old Testament and to a reference that Nicodemus would have picked up on again. We might miss it. Nicodemus didn't miss it. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's a major prophet. He's a big prophet. And if you've got a PDA, you can just, or a smartphone. PDA, how old is that term? Wow. Where'd that come from? If you got your PDA out. Um, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27, I believe, is what Jesus is referring to. And this is God making a promise to the Jews. 
Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I hear pages turn. I'm going to wait till everybody gets there because it's important to see this. Now again, remember what Jesus just said. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says, again, God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, do you see the parallel between being born of water and the Spirit and what Ezekiel just said? The Ezekiel passage is God saying, He will clean with sprinkling water and put a new spirit into man. Now, who's doing that? Who's doing that? I will. God says. He doesn't say sprinkle yourself and make yourself clean and get yourself a new spirit. He says, I will do this. This is the work of God. God is saying He will clean with sprinkling water and put a new spirit into man. This is the work of God and this is the new birth. Now that had to cripple Nicodemus. Why? We're going to get to that in a second. Side note, I don't think this passage has anything to do with being baptized, by the way. I think we've used it for that. We've got to be born of the water and the Spirit. We've got to be baptized and receive the Spirit. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what God was saying in Ezekiel either. Um, I've heard a lot of people say it means being baptized with the water part, and I don't see that at all. Now, very, very important in all of this, who does the work? God does the work. Jesus didn't say that to see the kingdom. We had to do anything except be born. This is not something that we do. Let's look at the next verses. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said this to you, that you must be born again. He's really chiding Nicodemus and saying, this really shouldn't be news to you. But it obviously is. Nicodemus, the Pharisees, the Jews, all of them had built their religious system around doing. And it had to be devastating to hear that all that doing would do them no good. All the work would not purchase favor with God. And it must have been confusing to hear that it's not up to man to do, but up to God to beget. Verse 8 expounds on the sovereignty of God in all of this and the helplessness of man to make it happen. I love this verse. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is amazing. How are people born of the Spirit? Jesus uses a play on words to show that it's not in man to make it happen. The Greek word for spirit and wind are the same word. It's pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma. Like pneumonia. What happens in pneumonia? Water fills up your lungs and you can't breathe right, right? Or fluid, not necessarily water. So pneuma means breath, spirit, and wind in Greek. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew word ruach. Jesus says the pneuma blows where it wishes. You can hear it, but you don't know where it's been or where it's going. And then he says it's the same with everyone who's born of the pneuma. 
You know something's happening, but you can't control it any more than you can control the wind. It blows, it changes, it moves on, and you are in no position to do anything about it. Anything. They were talking about this weather system that's moving in, and they said if the jet stream dips down enough, we're going to get cold air and we're going to get buried with snow. But if the jet stream doesn't dip down, if it stays up, we'll get real wet with rain. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What can you do to control that? Pray? <laughs> That's right. God, please. We have had enough. Stay your hand. No, you can't do anything about it. The wind blows where it will. And you'll feel the effects of it. And we'll know what happened once it's passed. But what can you do to change it? Nothing. Not a single thing. It blows where it wishes. And ultimately, who's in control of it? Starts with a G. Okay, thank you very much. The wind blows where it wishes. Now, there's more about this in the application section. So, Now we move to our last section. Section 3, verses 9 through 15. Let me read 9 through 15 to put back in context. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No man has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 9. Verse 9, by the way, is the last mention of Nicodemus in this whole chapter. In, in our passage here, we never hear his name again. We never hear him speak. Jesus has taken the wheel, Carrie Underwood, so that's good. Um, so last, last mention of Nicodemus, and last time we hear from the whole third chapter of John. Listen to his exasperation and desperation. Now, he is, he's changed that quick. We know that you are a teacher sent from God, and his last statement is, how can these things be? Here's a desperate man who's just like, what? It's like he's saying, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. How can this be true? He was saying, excuse me while I kiss this guy. But you're saying that's not right. How can this be the way it happens? How can I and we, how can we all have been so wrong for so long? Jesus, please help me make sense of this. Jesus' reply in the remaining verses of our passage does not pat Nicodemus on the head and comfort him necessarily. He chides him in verse 10. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, time out. Step aside for a second. This guy Jesus, little baby Jesus, meek and mild. Not so much. Now, he is meek and mild. But I tell you what, I don't think I would have liked to have dealt with the, the guy Jesus face to face because first of all, he would have seen straight through my pretensions and he probably would have spoke hard truth to me like this. And let me tell you what, he is blistering Nicodemus right here. He loves him. He loves him and he's glad that he came to talk to him. But he's saying, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? And if you don't understand it, what about the people that you're teaching? Something we talked about some last week at the elders retreat, and I want you guys to really hear this. As elders, we will give an account to how we've shepherded you. 
I will stand before God Almighty and I will give an account to how I've shepherded you. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, you're going to be held accountable for the way that you've spoken to my people. You're going to be held accountable for your teaching. And it's wrong at this point. That is frightening. Pray for us as elders. Pray for us as your leaders because that's frightening. And it should be frightening. I'm not, I'm not afraid of that fear, if that makes any sense. It should be frightening. So he just really kind of jumps on him with both feet. He doesn't just say a teacher, but pointing to Nicodemus' high standing, he calls him the teacher. And then levels him with the, and yet you don't understand these things part. And then note the way that Jesus puts the next part. I love this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Remember, Nicodemus has said, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. Now, Jesus uses the same type of structure. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, which is a plural word, you guys, all of you, do not receive our testimony. I believe Jesus is referring to His little band of witnesses including old crazy camel-hair-wearing locust and wild honey-eating John the Baptist and that ragtag group of disciples made up of nobodies and rogues, fishermen and tax collectors and outcasts. And he says, you guys, collectively, leaders, prominent people, will not listen to our testimony. We're telling you what we know and you're not listening because you don't know who we are. You influential types don't want to hear something that might make, that might shake up your system, and you definitely don't want to hear it from the people that God is using to communicate it. Jesus would later rejoice and say in Luke 10, 21 through 22, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He says it's not in the wise and understanding. It's not in your efforts to comprehend this. It's in God's willingness to reveal it to somebody and their willingness to listen. And usually it was little children and outcasts of society that heard what Jesus was saying. So Jesus wanted to make it clear to Nicodemus that the religious establishment we was not to be the dominant voice in the discussion of what God was doing. And there is a ton of implication there for us. Again, we're not going to get into that right now. Now verses 12 through 15 close out this passage. And we're going to kind of run through it a little little quicker. In these verses, Jesus both slams the door closed and then opens the door for Nicodemus and ultimately for us too. Verse 12-15 through 15, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as, Jesus, whoops, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying in verse 12, if you don't get the easy, plain, everyday stuff, how in the world can you hope to hear from the heart and mind of God? The same God who said back in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. If I'm talking to you in plain, 
Koine Greek and you don't understand the stuff I'm talking about, how in the world will you open yourself up enough to receive the crushing truth of God that is nothing like what you think it should be? He, he's really just leveling it. And then Jesus says, but I can talk about this stuff because I am the Son of Man. Now that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And we don't have time to get into all that. And I'm sure that, again, Nicodemus would have caught that reference. When Jesus said, Son of Man, Daniel 7 pops in Nicodemus' head, and the Son of Man received a kingdom and authority. And Jesus is saying, that's me. And he says, I'm the Son of Man, and I've come down from heaven to make God's plan known. And that plan involves me, the Son of God, the Son of Man, being lifted up like Moses' serpent in the wilderness. Again, another Old Testament reference from Numbers 21. And what happened was the Israelites were going along, they were grumbling, and God sent venomous snakes among them, and people were dying left and right. God said, make a bronze serpent and carry it high so that if people get bit by a snake, they might look up at this bronze serpent and if they will trust that they'll be healed, they'll be healed. And Jesus is saying, just like that bronze snake, I've got to be lifted up. Why? Jesus was referring to His crucifixion and saying that if anyone will look to me and believe like that old snake back then, they won't ever die, but they'll have eternal life. Now guys, that's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot more in there. But let's step out of the passage for a minute and let's ask ourselves, what do we do with this? And I want to point some application that I believe is incumbent upon us to implement. The first one's kind of odd. The first point application is, Jesus' references to the Old Testament make me all the more sure that we as New Testament Christians must master the Old Testament in order to appreciate the New Testament. We have to. It grieves my heart to see people carrying around New Testaments because they're missing two-thirds of the story. The Old Testament is huge. And if we don't understand the Old Testament, we will never understand the New Testament. If we don't understand the fury and the wrath and the anger of God and the hopelessness of man to keep the laws that God has given, we can't receive the message of grace. It's impossible. That Old Testament is super duper important. And again, Jesus referenced at least Ezekiel, Daniel, and Numbers in this passage alone, in just a few verses. Jesus spoke the Old Testament. So much of His words was just Old Testament passages. And those people would have got that. We miss it because we don't know the Old Testament. We're working our way through the Bible right now. As we're reading the Bible. And it's it's amazing. How good even Leviticus is. And there I say that irreverently. It's amazing. The Old Testament is huge. And as New Testament Christians, we have to master it. I've already, I'll, I'll move on now. Christian, read, study, appreciate, and share the Old Testament. That's application point number one. Now, application point two. That which is born of flesh is what? It's flesh. My human efforts are absolutely useless in the process of regeneration. Anybody see Wreck-It Ralph? Huh? What happens if you die outside your game? You do not regenerate, right? 
So that, that's a problem, okay? Let me tell you what. We're outside of our game. If we die outside of our game, we do not regenerate. Now, you will live forever. Everybody will live forever, but you'll either live forever in the kingdom of God or you will live forever in eternal torture in hell. I would rather regenerate. Thank you very much. Okay? But my efforts to make regeneration happen are useless, completely pointless. My pedigree is useless as well. And I think this is especially valid for those of us who grew up in church or who go to Christian school or to Christian college or Bible college even or who have come to church every time that we can thinking that this is earning us any standing with God. Listen, your physical birth only disqualifies you from heaven. That's all it does. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. The imperishable, I'm sorry. Let me read that again because I butchered that one. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Nothing you do in your flesh can bring you one inch closer to being born again. Did you hear that? Well, I've got to, I've got to, no, no, you don't have to, have to, have to. Nothing you do in your flesh brings you one inch closer to being born again. Your flesh is perishable and the inability of your fleshly efforts are there for one purpose. And that brings us to our last application point. Our inability leads us to the truth that you must be born again. Who has to be born again? Me, you, the Apostle Paul, Billy Graham, Adolf Hitler. Who's in the middle there? Uh, Mr. Rogers. Okay, I don't know. <clears throat> this is the most hopeless and the most joyous news in the world. You must be born again. And it's hopeless because you can't do it. Try it. If there was a way Asa could have been born earlier, Asa might have wanted out of that womb. Nothing he could do about it. Nothing I could do about it. I was born December 12, 1973. What did I do to be born? Absolutely nothing. So, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, Am I supposed to crawl up in my mother's womb, Jesus? You're talking out of your head. You're crazy. So it's hopeless, but it's also the most joyous news in the world. Listen, no one does anything to get themselves born in either the physical or the spiritual realm. It's joyous because it puts all of the responsibility on God to make it happen. It is His work. If you look back at the first part of the passage we're dealing with today, you see people believing in Jesus because they see Him working miracles. They believe, but get what the text says in verses 24, in verse 24 of chapter 2, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. Our efforts are just believing miracles. That's all we're doing. But the outcome of that is that Jesus doesn't entrust Himself to us. 
The important part is not my belief for regeneration. We'll get to this in a second. Now we're going to... You're going, but wait, 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 wait a second. Listen, the important part is that Jesus entrusts Himself to me. And me just believing because of things that I've seen, heard, whatever, that does not bring me one inch closer to being born again. And I, I get I get the quizzical looks. I get the blank faces right now because I've struggled with this. I've wrestled with this. Here you have people believing, but Jesus not giving of Himself to them. See the irony? We say all we have to do is what? To be born again. All you got to do is believe. Well, try to muster that up yourself. Give it a shot. Romans 10, 9 and 10, right? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and thus has righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and thus has salvation. So our part's confessing and believing, right? You're going, what, 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 what? You know, you just said it's not it, but it is it. It is it, but it's not it. Okay? Stick with me for just a minute. We're going somewhere. Our part is believing, but, but listen, we cannot do that unless Jesus entrusts Himself to us. Even blanker faces. That's good. The new birth, hear me, hear me, hear me. The new birth precedes our confessing and believing. How does that make you feel? Good. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and then we'll read verse 10 too. The new birth precedes our confessing and believing. The wind of the Spirit blows, and then we feel the effects of it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. That's God's part. That's the wind blowing. Then Ephesians 2.10 shows what happens after that wind has blown. For we are His workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. After being born again, we believe. And I know that everybody sitting here is not on on my page right now. But I want you to see the enormity of the necessity of God in your being born again. It's hopeless because you can't do it, and it's joyous because God can. After being born again, we believe, and after we believe, we start to do what we were saved for, which is good works. Please don't try to pull the horse with the cart. We are born again, then we have faith as a gift, then we believe, then we work. All are necessary. You cannot be born again and not exhibit faith that both believes and works. It's impossible. You can't do it. You also can't be born again by believing and working. Wrestle with that a second. Grab the levers. Shift a little bit. What's going on? Maybe the gears are grinding right now. The good news is this is God's work. The wind blows where it will. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you feel the effects of it. When you feel the effects of that wind, all of a sudden, I believe. I believe. 
And then you start to tell people, I believe. I believe. I confess with my mouth because I believe in my heart. Something happened. Something changed. And and, and I didn't do it. And that's good news. There's a lot of people who struggle and wrestle with the doctrine of election and predestination. I struggled with it and still struggle with it. But it's good news. It's the good news of the gospel that the wind blows where it will. And there's nothing that you can do about it. It's refreshing. It's freeing. Here sits Nicodemus saying, we know you're a teacher sent from God. Nobody can do the signs that you do. You're on par with us. You're equal with us because you're working. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's impossible. You're absolutely right, it's impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. The book of 1 John makes this clear over and over. So many who call themselves believers or Christians base their conversion on an experience or a ritual. I said a prayer once, or I've gone to church all my life, or I was baptized, or goodness gracious, I tithe. These things do not get you born again. I cannot overemphasize that at the expense of my hand. You are born again by the mysterious, sovereign wind of God. Nothing else. Those things can be signs that you were born again, but they are not steps you take to get born again. I want to ask you, as we close, as seriously and as loving as I can, have you been born again? Do you know that you know that you know that something happened that I didn't conceive of or contrive? Something happened to me. I was born again. There was a change in my affections. There was a change in the way my thought processes work. I don't love the things I used to love. I don't feel the things I used to feel. Something happened. Something blew on me. And if it hasn't, if your affections haven't changed, I'm going to say it as lovingly as I can, you have not been born again. If you just decided to try harder one day, you have not been born again. Nicodemus had not been born again. Jesus openly confronted him and said, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you'll never see the kingdom of God. I don't care how long you've studied. I don't care how long you've taught. I don't care what you say your standing is with people. Unless you are born again, you will spend eternity in hell. And I say that to you this morning, guys. I don't know where you are. Now, I believe we are as Christians, and here you go. Now let's open up this can of worms. I believe we as Christians are called to inspect each other's fruit. I believe that we are to partake of each other's fruit to the point that I can look at somebody and say, God has used that person to refresh me, encourage me, strengthen me, rebuke me at times, and I see fruit in their lives that is consistent with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and I see God working that person. I know by their confession and by their fruit that they're Christians. And then I can look at other people and I can say their fruit doesn't exhibit somebody that's been born again. Now, I leave their judgment to God. God will be their judge. I'm not their judge. 
but I can look at them and rightly estimate whether there's fruit in their lives or not. And that fruit is a product of the Holy Spirit. It's not something they're doing. It's something God is doing in them and through them. And listen, sanctification is where we really yoke up with God and start to do the things that we know that we should be doing. But it's not at regeneration. Your efforts cannot get you born again. Do you know that you've been born again? Your life will show it if you have been. John's purpose in writing this gospel is again stated in John 20, 31, so that you may believe, John says, I've written these things and recorded these seven signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You say, well, we've got to believe. Yes, we do. But you have to be born again as well before you can believe. The new birth leads us to this belief. This belief leads us to this life. Do you have it? Do you live it? Do not marvel that I say to you this morning that you must be born again. Now, let me tell you what that wind sounds like a little bit. I've heard it rustling through my trees. I've heard it blowing through your lives, and it sounds like this. You are born a sinner. You are not just alienated from God. You are God's enemy when you're born. You've got no choice in that matter. You are born of the flesh, and what is of the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Asa is born in the flesh. Asa was born estranged from God. Asa was born God's enemy. You are in the same boat. Asa's my six-month-old son, by the way, for this. Yep, that guy. That guy right there. I'm sorry, buddy. It's bad news, but there's good news after that. The wind sounds like that. The wind tells us that we're sinners. But the wind keeps blowing and the wind says this, there is hope. It's not in your striving. It's in God Himself coming down in the person of Jesus Christ. And He was born of a virgin in the flesh. He lived a sinless, spotless, perfect life. He pleased His heavenly Father in every way, shape, and form. And then those who were in the flesh crucified Him. And they crucified Him so that He could pay the penalty for your estrangement and your alienation from God. The wind blows and the wind says in right words, not words that we misunderstand, you were a sinner. Jesus Christ came to be your Savior. He hung on a cross. He died. He was dead. He was buried. He was in the grave for three days. Three days later, He arose victorious over death and life and over sin. And He presented Himself alive to over how many people? Hundreds of people. They saw Him alive. He brought His disciples back together. He ascended into heaven. And today, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us so that we can have access into heaven and spend eternity with God. What is your part in that? Your part is to believe. You say, but you said my part is not to believe. Your part is to believe. The wind rustles your leaves this morning and says, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If that wind blows and you receive that breath, you will believe. And those songs that you've sung wrong for so long, all of a sudden, you see them clearly. Father, would You breathe on us this morning? Would You help us to know the truth of the Gospel? 
Would you help us to know the power of the Gospel? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. God, blow the wind of your Gospel into our hearts, into our lives, into our minds, so that we might receive that breath. You told Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind, son of man. And he did. And those powerless dead bones came together. And as the wind continued to blow, sinew and muscle came upon those bones, and then flesh, and then life. God, maybe today we're arguing with you. Maybe somebody's sitting here in these seats and they're arguing with me and saying you're wrong. Maybe I am. But you are not God. How can these things be, we say, and we resign ourselves to your plan? We trust You that Your way is perfect and that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. God, would You blow on us today? And would You confront us with the truth that we must be born again? We have to confess that we're sinners. We have to confess that we need a Savior. We have to confess that Jesus is that Savior. And we have to confess that all of this is your doing and not ours, God. That's what belief looks like. May we know it and may our lives show it, God. Lord, I need You. Oh, I need You. Every hour I need You, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need In Jesus' name, Amen. Please stay and eat with us. Enjoy each other. Enjoy this day. And may the Spirit of God work in our midst as we remain here today. God bless you.